you for that. Um, I want to highlight you. We uh, uh, shared with you, and if you weren't here, maybe you didn't hear, at our Easter service, um, we had about 10 people come to faith in Jesus Christ for the first time. And last weekend, we had 10 of our youth who went to the district conference place their faith in Jesus Christ. And so we rejoice with heaven about what God is doing. And so, praise God. Praise God. Oh, that's neat. That's great. We're going to continue uh, our study we began on the book of Titus, a little, a little book tucked in the back of the New Testament. Uh, you'll find it before Hebrews, and uh, if you want a, a look there, you'll find it, a couple books before Hebrews. and um, Titus, it's not a very well-known book, um, and we introduced it last week, and um, because the first five verses are so loaded, I'm going to preach on the same five verses, uh, just a different message. Um, I can't exhaust it too well. I probably could keep going for next year on these first five verses, but um, I'm not sure we'll try that. But uh, we're going to look at them this morning. And so if you'd open there, I'd like to read them and trust God to teach us. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and a knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Paul told Titus specifically to straighten out what was left unfinished. Specifically to kind of help organize the church, set the structure of the church so the church could accomplish what God wanted and be who God wanted the church to be. And the idea of helping a church get functioning as it should is spelled out in his word. It's really kind of the human side, if I may, of what was being done. But Titus, while he was very much involved in this as aspect, Paul points to the divine aspect in Titus 2.14, where he says, who gave himself for us, Christ, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. You see, the divine spiritual side of it is that God is purifying a people that are his very own. And when we put this together, the commandment Paul gave to Titus and the spiritual side of what God is doing, we have the ministry of the gospel requires that when people are brought to faith in Christ, we introduce them to the fellowship of believers that take seriously the fact that they are to be God's very own people in their geographic locations. And let's follow along this text because it highlights what it means to be God's very own people. Verse 1, Paul, bondservant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God. What a unique phrase, chosen of God. I mean, all through Scripture, it's quite clear that God is in the habit of choosing people, electing a people. And whenever we think of terms of God's elect, of God's chosen, we need to think of a people called, a people he has chosen for himself. 
We were at a um, district conference, some of the staff, and we heard uh, uh, Con Campbell speak. And uh, he was opening First Peter to us. And he made a unique phrase that kind of grabbed my attention. He said, when we think uh, on, on our terms, we think of my testimony. And that we chose to trust Christ as our Savior. But he said, from heaven's perspective, God chose you. God chose me. We've been set apart for him. I thought that was a neat, neat way to look at it. God has chosen a people. And Scripture makes that clear. And the base of this is found, really, in the Old Testament, where on numerous occasions we read of God choosing a people for himself. We know and we learn in the Old Testament God chose Israel as his people. We read in the Old Testament the Israelites were not chosen to be God's people because they were special nor because they were perfect or strong or they brought anything to the table. They were chosen because they were chosen. In other words, the choosing rests on God himself. It implies a relationship that these chosen ones are known by him. But to me it what strike me is that behind this choice is even another choice. And that is God's choice to have a people at all. I mean, God wasn't coerced in creation. I mean, God made a choice. But think about the implications of that. God began with Adam, an individual. Then came Eve. Kids. A community. And what do we read in the early pages of Genesis? Sin came in and just messed up and there was brokenness. Fragmentation of community. It's a sad picture. And we know God certainly cares about fallen man so much, obviously, that he sent Christ to be the Savior of fallen mankind. But another question is, does God care about fragmented unity, community? Yes. Obviously. You know, he's ordained that those fallen who are redeemed by Christ should be part of a new, readily identifiable community. And this community, this people of God, are, are uniquely his, particularly his. But it begs a question. Why? Why would God choose a people to be his very own? Now the first thought would be, well, he loves us. And, right, and he does. But there's considerably significant other reasons. Why would God call a people to be his very own? One, to model community. I mean, the surrounding nations were to look at Israel and say, wow, there's something different about that group of people. God chose a people so they might live as a model community in the midst of fragmentation. To show that community is all about what God can do among people. He called Israel and he called them a nation. Then he placed them as a nation in the midst of other nations and said to them, okay, now show these other nations how a nation that belongs to me should behave when God is their Lord. I want all the other nations to look at you, Israel, and say, wow, God is certainly in their midst. Look how they behave. And so God chose a people to model community, but there's another reason. He chose a people to show his sovereign power. You see, God wanted it to be very clear, seeing that he was the sovereign Lord, that he does as he pleases. 
that he's the God of Israel. God showed this with his people. And it's interesting that when we read about Israel, you'll often find, most often, that God's chosen people constantly refer to Exodus as a sovereign act of God. It's a key point in their history as his very own people. And it points to the truth that he is sovereign. And so God chose a specific people, a personal group, a community, to show his sovereign power. But he also chose a people to be his very own to show his grace. Over and over again, God dealt with his own people in a way that they didn't deserve it. He showered them with blessings, even then they, when they were ungrateful, even when they were rebellious. When, he was, when they were in a wilderness wandering for their disobedience, God was gracious enough to provide them manna, bread from heaven, daily. But they grumbled. They doubted. They disrespected God. But God gave them what they didn't deserve. He gave them manna, manna they didn't deserve. It's called grace. Over and over and over, God showered Israel with mercy, and the surrounding nations couldn't miss it. That Yahweh was a God of mercy. When others looked at Israel, there would be no denying it, that God was a God of grace. There's another reason, though, why God chose a people to be his very own. It's to show what it means to belong to God, what it means to walk with him. God chose a people in order that he might clearly identify the privilege and wonder of being related to the living God. And even though these people were chosen, they had responsibilities. And if they didn't carry out those responsibilities, they experienced trouble. God's people demonstrated categorically, you don't mess around with God. He is sovereign. He's a God of justice. He will not be mocked. And should you, you will face consequences. God's people, God's chosen people, faced exile, they were dispersed around the world. You see, God, too, had a call on them, and he has a call on you and I. But we have a responsibility. And so God has his elect people. He chose them so that in his dealings with them, they might learn and teach other nations about God. Those are significant reasons God chose a people to be his very own. We also know from Scripture, God chose Christ as the cornerstone. Dan shared about this a while ago, and I would like to read 1 Peter 2, 4 through 8. Peter writes, In coming to him as to a living stone rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, this stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. We'll stop right there. God's today, God's chosen people, the church, we are God's chosen people by virtue of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And first, Peter, as I said, Paul used this, or Peter used this picture of Christ as a stone, chosen one of God. And then he showed how he's a cornerstone. 
That cornerstone is the base upon which you build everything. And this is what Christ was chosen to be. Christ is to be the foundation of everything God is doing for man. And if men will respond, oh, they'll experience all that God has for them. If not, they'll find him to be a stumbling stone and find him an offense. Christ is the cornerstone of his people, his chosen people that he's chose for his very own possession. But as we go to the New Testament, we find something remarkable. God chose us as believers as his church. Listen to the testimony of Ephesians 1. I'm going to read verse 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And in love he predestined us to adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. The people who are the church, as Paul writes, who are in Christ, who are the body of Christ, God also calls his chosen, his elect, the special people of God. People chosen as his very own possession to live for the praise and glory of his name. And as we approach this service, this series, if you don't get this, that you're part of God's chosen people, his church, the rest of this letter won't carry the weight it was intended. This is so underlying to everything Paul's writing to Titus. Because God has chosen that the church in today's world should be his very own people. And it's incredibly important that believers understand the significance of the body of Christ and what it means to be in Christ. But let's be honest, we really do live in an individualized society. It's, and it seeps into our thinking. This flows into our spiritual experience, which is often on a limited, individualized basis. But that doesn't go far enough. We're to understand ourselves to be individuals related to Christ first and foremost, but also to those who are also related to Christ. God's chosen people in that particular place, the church. And I fear, as one person said, problem with many people's theology is it incorporates no ecclesiology, which is the study of the church. And the easiest thing to do is to knock the church. Certainly because the church is made up of sinners, it's easy to find faults. If you were to talk to some people and say, hey, how come you don't go to church? Remember, the main answer is, well, it's full of hypocrites. You're right. That's right, it's full of sinners. Um, and I find it ironic is, if you were to put it back on them and say, are you a hypocrite? Well, yeah. Well, isn't it hypocritical to say, you know, so you kind of turn the tables, but it is. But the fact is the church is filled with sinners who are redeemed by the grace of God, who are chosen to be a people, his very own possession. We don't have the freedom to casually criticize the church of Jesus Christ. Because it is a community of people in Christ, chosen of God, placed in geographic locations to be something and do something. It's our calling. Twofold, Titus, Paul tells Titus. One, as he said in Ephesians, our calling is to glorify him in all we do. Apostle Paul says those 
of us who are chosen in Christ are called to the praise of his glorious grace. That doesn't mean that we as individuals simply glorify him, although that's what we should seek to do as individuals. The context of Paul's writing is community. And collectively, is that not a demanding calling? To act as a community? In a fellowship? In a way that glorifies him? By the way, in a culture that's increasingly volatile towards one another. Just turn on the news. The media, our government, I mean, they're just mean-spirited. And I find it interesting as you look back to Israel that God said to Israel, I want you to show the nations around you what community looks like. That calling hasn't changed for the people of God. God says to the church, I want you to be such a people that when the culture looks at you, they say, wow, there's something different about that community. That calling hasn't changed because God's raising up a people who are his very own possession, to glorify him, to act as a community in a way that brings him glory. But Titus 2.14 says there's something else about who we are as God's people, a calling upon the people of God, and that is to do good. Now, Titus 2.14 again, as I read that, he said, who gave himself for us, Christ, he may redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for what good deeds that we would model to a watching world what truly good deeds are. You see, it's not just what we are, it's also what we do. We are people characterized by what we are to the praise of his glory and what we do. That is, we do good by his standards, not the culture's, by his standards. So Paul sends Titus on a simple mission. He says, Titus, I want you to go in towns in Crete. I want you to establish churches and Titus, I always want you to remember, you are making it possible to identify God's very own people. As you go to the specific geographic locations and help organize those churches, people are going to look at those churches and say, there, that community's different. That's a high calling. That's an exciting calling, though, that God has on us as his church. It's an exciting concept to me that every town in Crete that Titus went to, it would be possible in that town to identify God's very special people. And I find it incredibly exciting that in Dassel and Kokato, people could look and see God's very special people, God's chosen people, his church, and that they could identify them by the way we love one another and the way we unify around the gospel. The church is a community of people knit together as the body of Christ. And as we listen to Scripture, if we identify with Christ, it's very clear, you are called, we are called to identify as God's very own people. It begs some questions, though. Do you understand the significance of what it means to be identified with Christ and then to identify with the church? If so, are you willing to commit yourself to his people to throw your weight with that people so you can be to his glory, to do what is good, be clearly identifiable in your geographic location as a member of God's very own people? Or are you keeping your spiritual experience personal? Or keeping yourself peripheral? I spoke some time ago about dating the church. and Just kind of keeping on the outside. 
but not really committed to it? Have you determined that as little involvement as possible is the way to go? Because many do. That's not what God's chosen people do. We're his people, called to the praise of his glory and to do good. What are the people of God like? Paul tells Titus, I'm going to have to get moving here, that the people of God, first of all, are people of faith. He says three things in here. If you keep looking at verse 1, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God. And then if you look farther down in verse 4, Titus, my true child, in a common faith. God's very own people are people of faith in the sense that they know what it is to be justified by faith. So Paul talked about this common faith with Titus. They had that in common, this faith that was a possession of all of God's people not just the selected few. The people of faith are the people who don't talk nonsense about getting right with God by doing their best. But people of faith say the only way you can get right with God is by asking Christ to give them what they don't deserve, salvation, and to paying a price for their sins. That's people of faith. As Christians, as the people of God, those chosen of God, we are to be people of faith. Have you been justified by faith? Have you come to faith in Christ? We are to be people of faith. A community of believers, a visible, tangible body of believers in a specific situation comprised of people of faith, justified by faith, living by faith, with the person of their faith, Jesus Christ alone being their focus. Community of faith. God's very own special people are to be people of faith. We're also to be people of knowledge. Verse 1 for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth. Secondly, God's very own people are people of knowledge. And he says that they are people who have the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. They have their facts right about the truth of God. Put another way, they've taken their time to learn some theology. I guess if there's one thing, probably several, but if there's one thing that really does concern me about the contemporary church especially in North America, is that we're more experience-oriented than theology-oriented. I mean, just look at the books put out. It seems like there's increasing number of books coming out about how we can feel better and maybe look better as Christians. Then we, instead of people looking to buy books on theology about the person of God, person of Christ, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the theology of last times, the church. Not many people seem to be up for those. We'd find, I fear, a wide majority of people in the Christian community don't really study at all even. But Paul's stating that the people of God are people of knowledge. Not just people who know the truth, but they know it to the point they acknowledge it and appropriate it. They seek to live it out. They know the truth, they acknowledge it in their lives. These are God's very own people. And this knowledge leads to godliness, which literally means, what Paul's saying, to tremble before God. This godliness is the sense of awe of God. So they learn the truth to walk in awe of God. I hope that's why you study the Word. Not just to accumulate knowledge, but to know God better. To love Him more deeply. That's the ultimate motivation. People of knowledge... That's who the people of God are to be. A godly person is one who always has a sense of awe 
when he understands the majesty of God, which comes from being a person of knowledge. You and I, as members of the people of God, are identified with a community of people that have a deep down a desire to be known in their towns as God's very own people, people of faith, people of knowledge, and people of hope. Verse 2, in the hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. You see, our hope is rooted in God's character. God cannot lie. So we have hope of eternal life, and it's certain. It's not something we wish, roll the dice and hope, get to the end of our life and hope maybe things weigh out. No, our certainty of our faith is rooted in God's character. God hasn't lied, nor does he stutter. He said those who are in Christ, those who have the Son, can know they have eternal life. We are people of hope. And the people of God come before the Lord, and they know they have eternal life. This has become our hope, the hope we sung about. It's the hope we share. It's the hope we share with those who lie on their deathbed. It's the hope we share as we sit down with an attorney and put together our living will. It's the hope and it's the certainty of knowing Jesus Christ. We of all people in this world should be people of hope, purveyors of hope. So that as people look at the community of believers, they're like, man, I don't know about you, but this world's falling apart, but there's a group in our town that, wow, they have a peace. They have a certainty in their life and their being. They know where they're going. And they live accordingly. We have a world desperately in need of hope. And guess what? We hold out the word of hope. The word of truth to them. I think that's exciting. I think it's exciting that there's a people who are full of hope. A people who are full of knowledge a people full of faith, and when they get together, they become a church and an assembly. Visible, viable, vital community. God's very own people. That's who we are. I'd like to close with a couple questions that text requires me to ask, requires all of us to ask. Do you take the church of Jesus Christ seriously? And to maybe put it another way, do you really understand the church is not somewhere you go but the church is who you are, who we are. I don't know where it seeped in to our thinking that the church is where we go. But it's not. It's who we belong to. The church is who we are. And do you take that church seriously? Have you identified with the people of God? It's one of my concerns about church hopping is they've never stopped and identified themselves with a local assembly. And they're missing out. Let me ask you, have you identified with the people of God? Maybe you're visiting from a different location. I hope you have back in your community. Can that group, that assembly, can they count on you? Can they count on you to be an active part of that assembly? To be a person of faith, a person of hope, a person of knowledge. Can they count on you to stick it through? And are you an active part of God's very own people? Might we at Elam answer, all of us, with a resounding yes, for we are God's very own people. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for your word. I thank you for this powerful truth we find 
in Titus. Lord, I know probably sitting in this room, and I know I've been hurt by the church. Some of us have. Maybe disillusioned. We have maybe all kinds of reasons, at least in our mind, from our perspective, to pull away. But I thank you your word doesn't allow us that. Matter of fact, it calls us closer. It calls us to commit to what you're committed to. A people, chosen, dearly loved, that's called to make a difference in this place and in this time. And God, I pray you'd bring us to a point of not not dating the church, not sitting on the peripheral, but God, give us an excitement to see how you could use us in Dassel, Cocado, Howard Lake, and the surrounding areas. Help us to get excited about, God, how as we commit to you and commit to one another, you provide a platform in which people take notice and you're glorified. And Lord, give us a zealousness for that so that in all things, Jesus, you're praised for you are the Lord, the head of your church. It's you we live for and it's you we want to praise you in all that we do and all that we are. It's in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen.